after your TED Talk came out, was there any slivers of fear in your mind of some sort of odd repercussion? <laughs> um, yes, a little. More Wiser Podcast. Jen Gilhoy, Zero Proof Advocate. So Jen, it's been a hundred years, roughly, since prohibition in the United States, where the U.S. outlawed alcohol for roughly a 13-year period. So let's say for some reason this gains momentum again and we find it up for a popular vote. How would you, Jen Gilhoy, cast your vote today on this issue? On prohibition itself. Um, well, a lot of my work has dove into prohibition and why it didn't work. Um, because it's very limiting. It's very restricting and it's telling people, no, you can't have alcohol. And the immediate reaction, if you're anything like me, is, is more of a rebel tendency was to be like, well, now I want it more. Sure. <laughs> so a lot of the, what we look at in our history is really important. The history of alcohol use, right? And what's been tried over many generations, what worked and what didn't, the temperance movement, all the reasons that people have come to, you know, omit alcohol in their lives, but then also like from the government perspective and imposing this um, are complex. And we know enough now from these different models that we want to kind of shift how that we're approaching it now. We just know more. So prohibition didn't work clearly. And like you said, <laughs> there was a rebel tendency, but you know, I can't help but think when I was a kid, I had dare and I don't I can't imagine that actually worked for a lot of people. So, I mean, where's the mm. line? How do you actually correctly inform people of, you know, alcohol use and, you know, healthy habits forming as you grow up versus completely outlawing it? What do you think is the perfect blend there? Yeah, I think it includes everything. Like we look to the history of tobacco use and what happened when the government took control and changed the labels and the advertising around it made an impact. They outlawed the Marlboro Man in magazines and, and people were like, oh, well, we're still going to find a way to smoke. We're still going to, you know, the glamorization of it might still be there. But I think it was highly effective in the educational part of the campaign, right? And then the rest of the culture and society needed to kind of come around that. And that takes time. That could take, you know, 20 years with with tobacco. And obviously people still smoke, but you look at how there's not the glamorization of that anymore in our culture. You just don't see it as much. And with alcohol, we are still fully seeing that happening. Um, glass of wine in hand, all of those things and those cues socially are still happening with alcohol. So I do think, and in my TEDx talk, and we'll get to that, um, what I wanted to call out was the importance of changing and shifting the labels and education around it, which is part of it, but then also just having society kind of come to it on their own, come to the realization on their own and have it feel like a choice that they're going to make because they're informed. So it's very, it's complex. Yeah. It is. And it feels like though that tobacco and alcohol have diverged a bit because you're not allowed to to market to children with tobacco. You're not allowed to do um, flavored e-cigarettes anymore. But yet with alcohol, White Claw seems to be the epitome of this. Those type of drinks that are, you don't taste it, they're fruity, they're low calorie for young people who are really health conscious. 
is this an issue? Should should the ability for these companies to advertise in the way they do be forced to change in your mind? Yes. Um, what we have started even seeing in the past year is, you know, these um, larger makers of soda and different products also putting all sorts of substances into the beverage market that teens, um, young people can easily have access to. And it's it's marketed, um, you know, with the idea that it's for young people. Um, so that's concerning. I mean, I think even like, you know, again, going back to the tobacco industry with Joe Camel, you know, it's like cartoony and like they know that if they can hook some of these young uh, buyers and consumers early, that they're going to be on this kind of path to continue to use whatever that product is. Hey, if your career is perfect and everything is going exactly as planned and you've reached the height of where you want to go, skip this ad. But if not, I wrote a book called Leader Relativity, finally a starting point for new leaders. And I think it might just be up your alley. Because honestly, when I first started down my leadership journey eight years ago, it was confusing. There was so much thrown at me. And oh, by the way, what I was reading in the real world was completely different than what I was being taught at work. So if you're in this weird spot where you know you want to take your next step, but you're not quite sure how to do it, please give my book a try. You're exactly who I wrote it for. I can honestly say leadership has never been made this simple. So if that sounds interesting, if you're ready to take that leap with me, Hop over to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you buy books and grab your copy today. Thanks. Do they keep, do they being big alcohol, do they keep statistics on the amount uh, of product that they presumably sell to people underage? Or is it kind of like they acknowledge that it's happening and being consumed, but they don't truly bring it to light? I think they don't truly bring it to light. I think they have a very good idea of what their marketing um you know, the, the revenue, it's driven by revenue. Um, so there's a, a missing, I think, social good component at those companies. And I don't know, I haven't like myself dug into all the stats and what they fully disclose, but I think, um, you know, there's, there's no reason why I wouldn't believe that they know exactly what they're doing. Oh, absolutely. And, and while we're on the topic of, of young people, now in your TED talk, you bring up non-alcoholic specialty drinks. But do you think there should be some sort of age restriction or something to bar young people from going into those since they are essentially um, a replicative with no alcohol of their alcoholic counterparts? Do you think it's like a gateway for young people to eventually get into alcoholic drinks? Yeah, that is a fascinating question. Um, We have talked about that at length in our Zero Proof Collective communities and Ultimately, you look to drinking models um, in Europe, for example, younger people with their family, um, you know, at age 14, maybe having their first alcoholic beverage um, and the their culture can treat, you know, drinking and consumption very differently than America. Again, it's that you can't have it right until you're a certain age that creates this you know, romanticism with it and this excitement to do something that is not um, allowed, right? And so I think I, what we landed on with this was that the drinks that we can introduce our young people to are not necessarily even mimicking an alcoholic drink and like a, you know, with a substitute gin, for example, but just a completely different sort of elevated cocktail or 
beverage that does not have all the sugar content and gives the experience of an adult kind of celebratory environment, right? So if we can educate our kids, give them examples, um, I don't believe it's a gateway. In fact, I've heard very much that it can be a deterrent. And I'm, you know, I have an 18 and 20 year old that I have, you know, given these NA products to all along. And it's awesome because they know now they, they've tasted non-alcoholic beer and they're like, didn't really like it because they haven't even, you know, developed that kind of flavor palette yet. But then what happens, I think, is when they're going into different situations where they know there will be alcohol, they know they can easily pick up something that's a substitute and like no one's going to question them or even know. So I feel like it's really helpful in arming our young children with, you know, different choices and um, different alternatives. And you brought up Europe and many other countries around the world. The drinking age is lower mm-hmm. and they're exposed to alcohol earlier in life presumably under more supervision. Would you like to see the drinking age in the U.S. changed or is it okay at 21 where it is? Oh, that's a great question. I don't think our culture is ready for that. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, we're just, if we were to, you know, I think a lot of that early drinking, you know, would happen in a family or community setting. Like if you were the parents and like your kids were, you know, 14, 15, 16, whatever that is. Um, that's not going to necessarily need it to be like a legal drinking age. Like, I don't think it's healthy to, you know, allow younger people to go into bars and settings like that. But, um, you know, imparting that on our culture in America to say, let's lower the drinking age. Um, I don't believe that that's the answer, but, you know, you look at the legalization of marijuana, like all the other things happening for our young people. And we're seeing that play out. Like, how is, how is that really working to their benefit. I, again, the, the prohibition or the idea of, you know, it's not legal, um, creates an interest in actually trying some of those things. But at the same time, we have to protect the health of, you know, at certain ages, the, their brains aren't even developed enough yet to handle these substances. So I do think there's a reason and, um, you know, guidelines that are important to have in place. And I think the social component of it, which you mentioned in your talk and, and you've said, speaking with me now, is a is a big part of it. And I remember when I was a young man and I was in college and, and you'd be somewhere, if you didn't have something in your hand, it felt foreign. You're like, what am I supposed <laughs> to do with these appendages coming out of my body? <laughs> I mean, totally. how do you change? I mean, it almost feels like it's hardwired in your brain to have something in your hand. How, I'm and that's just one small example, but culturally you're right. There's this notion that if you're not drinking, there's something wrong with you. It's something mm-hmm. off. It's weird. How should we start shift the mindset of people that it's not strange? I mean, what sorts of campaigns or things could you actually do? Yeah, those are great questions. I think, um, one of the, again, going back to tobacco, like the idea of seeing someone with a cigarette in their hand, right? It's clear, that they're smoking. With alcohol and non-alcoholic beverages, you don't know what's in their glass. They're still holding it. And we talk about that a lot. It's like if I'm pictured at an event and I have this fancy, you know, beverage in a wine glass, people will, you know, assume that maybe I'm drinking an alcoholic beverage until they look at the content or story more and find out that's not the truth. But I do think there is something, um, you know, 
giving off like this relaxed and social vibe when you do have something in your hand like that. So that's why we focus a lot on the drinkware and the whole kind of experience of people do actually kind of want that because social situations are just plain awkward and you're standing. um, You know, I think of like how much we have our mobile phones in our hands. You know, that is also added to like, you know, I can't just like comfortably relax in the situation. And I do think, I think it's okay, you know, to kind of swap that out for, you know, if you're used to having an alcoholic beverage in hand, try a non-alcoholic version and try, you know, experiment with that in your social settings to like, see, does anyone even care? Does anyone notice? They really don't. They're just like, oh, she's drinking. She's fun, Um, which is a whole nother conversation we need to change. But Um, that's how you can kind of experiment and test out your comfort level in those social settings. Now that's more geared towards young people, but I want to bring the conversation to people who have struggled with alcohol. So Mm, mm. former alcoholics and these non-alcoholic specialty drinks, is there data or research to prove that these help keeping people from relapsing or is it potentially doing the opposite where they go, okay, well, I've had a non-alcoholic beer. What's, Mm -hmm. what's one beer, right? Absolutely. It is, um, again, proof that each person's individual journey with sobriety is different. I have heard, and I just heard this last week, someone say he had been trying to get sober for a very long time. And then he discovered NA beer and switched to that. Totally fine. Oh, great. Like it just worked for him. He was like, that's all I want. I just actually wanted the taste. And um, figured it out and does that. And he told me, he, he said, if it weren't for that, I would still be struggling tremendously. Um, I have heard, and you know, a, a doctrine is very much do not have anything that resembles the real thing. And it's very ingrained in that community. And it has been for, you know, since the beginning, as far as I know, it's, um, it was told to me and I myself in my first three years of sobriety didn't touch anything that would have resembled anything non-alcoholic. Of course, we didn't have any great products at that time either, but, um, I think it is a very individual choice as to what you're ready for and can handle. Certainly the NA drinks could be triggering, for some, and I do say that in my talk because I don't want to be, you know, the one recommending everyone go out and do that. But it is you kind of have to know your your inner journey with it. And for example, at three years sober, I I had rewired my brain. Like I knew like how alcohol use impacted me when I went to an NA beverage. I was like. I took it slow. I was like, how does this feel? And I did it in community and I let other people know I was sampling this so that um, I didn't risk any sort of relapse because of it. Um, you know, and I think it's it's a little bit of that. And now nine years of sobriety, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is like liberating. I can do all of this. It's not connected to a character defect, you know, that, so it's, it's, it's wide open for me now, but I am very sensitive to people like in very early recovery, I would say up to one year at least that maybe that's just not an option. Okay. A a year at least. So you mentioned, uh, AA Alcoholics Anonymous, and you see it a lot in TV and movies. It's portrayed how accurate is what you're seeing compared to the actual meetings. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, In movies and in culture, um, some of it's accurate, but it also contributes to the idea that, you know, 
that's the path. And the first thing you have to say is, I'm Jen, I'm an alcoholic. Right. And so that for me was off-putting for 20 years. And I always say, I would love to see more of an invitation in community to be able to come into a space. And of course you can actually, now it's more known that you can just go to an AA meeting and no one's going to force you to say that. I actually, I want that to be known. Like you can come in, have a sidebar conversation with the leader, whoever, to just say, it's my first meeting. I'm not ready to say that yet. And you can just say, whatever you need to. You don't need to declare alcoholism on your first AA meeting. Um, I want that to be known because I assumed that and I practiced it for years in the mirror. I'd be like, here's what I'm going to like, this is what it feels like to say it. And then of course I was like, I can't do that. I'm not going to go to a meeting because I'm just, um, when am I going to be ready to say that in front of a group of strangers I've never met? So just to say that you can um, have that experience in AA where you just go in and just listen, observe, be in community without having to declare that. Hey, real quick, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to say thank you to everybody for all the support since starting this podcast. I really do appreciate it. And if you're looking for a way to support the show, just tell a friend. Just tell a friend that, hey, I found this new podcast where Joe spends hours researching every guest because he really does respect your time and want it to be worthwhile. So if you're looking to help me out, you could make my week by just telling someone about the show. That's it. All right, let's get back to it. Now, the step probably before that is realizing you you have a problem or that you're consuming too much alcohol. And, and I have to ask, as someone who hasn't struggled with that type of disease or addiction, is rock bottom actually a thing or is it more of a collection of events that your brain logically goes, I need to change. Do you think for most people it's an instantaneous event or a series of smaller things that occur, which lead them to going, I really need to change? Yeah, it can be all of that. Um, I always tell people, you know, it's like this mythical, like, what is it? Because you could argue that in my life I had reached rock bottom over and over and over again. Um, and then it becomes like, what's the severity of it? Is it a DUI? Is it you lose something in your life because of it? Like, And I think if you're always seeking to define, if you're in active use and seeking to define what is rock bottom, um, that can be really unhealthy too, because it really is a series of events. It's a, a comprehensive look at how has alcohol served me in my life? And if you do have an issue with it, there's really no denying that it, it really doesn't serve you. But, you know, addiction is tricky because I told myself over and over again, I, you know, I'm fine. That wasn't devastating enough. That wasn't, you know, last night and this morning's hangover somehow didn't show any outward impact to the world, for example. It didn't have any social implications other than just me feeling horrible and, <laughs> you know, not enough and all of the terrible things that come with that the next morning for, for certain, you know, for addiction, you just, you bypass that and you just keep going. It just kind of feeds. So rock bottom is a very interesting concept um, that, you know, I think people almost feel like they need to land on to like be able to go to treatment, but because addiction is the nature of it is that oftentimes people will have to kind of hit that point where everyone around them also notices it. And it's like a forced intervention or 
need to go to treatment or someone in your life hopefully is aware of it and um, can step in and be that like other voice to say, yeah, you've really hit rock bottom. We need to get you help, which is what happened for me. Um, I, I just felt like I couldn't do it on my own or I didn't have enough social kind of other implications of it. And so for me and my husband at the time was the one that said, yeah, um, this is impacting all of our lives. Now, if someone out there receives that type of conversation, how do you go about, um, I guess, respectfully absorbing that? Because as someone who is struggling with some sort of substance abuse, I, I imagine it would be very easy to dismiss the person. And so if you have a low, I'm going to call it a low key problem, Jen, if you have a low key problem, what are some signs that people might be trying to have that conversation with you? But it isn't necessarily Mm. like, Hey, I'm going to sit you down and and these are all the issues because it might be under the radar because if I was going to have that conversation with someone, it'd be very difficult. And I would be very nervous about, you know, hurting them. So Mm. if you think you might be verging on a problem, what are signs that people might be trying to help you without explicitly saying so? Uh, that's, that's a great question. Um, I think, you know, there's a whole, you know, practice now in culture of setting some boundaries. And I think people are like, where, where does it cross the line to like really talk to someone about it and step in? And oftentimes if you don't have the lived experience of being in recovery or know exactly what that person's going through, it can be very hard. And that the truth is, is you know, oftentimes it's loved ones who see something happening in someone's life and, but are complete, they're so close to the situation that there's anger and frustration and, and, you know, in an inability to approach that person in a way that helps them kind of explore it or decide that they need help. So um, just talking yesterday with one of the state's most qualified interventionists and how he comes in and helps families who know um, they need to help their loved one, but don't have the tools themselves and are too close to it. So approaching, um, you know, looking to different resources like Al-Anon or AA to get some of that language and how you might make that first step to have the conversation with someone. Um, It's hard. It's hard. But if the people that are so close to the person that is a you know, in misuse with alcohol, if they're not equipped with those things, it often gets escalated um, to the point where it has devastating consequences. I think a question most people are probably thinking at this point is, statistically speaking, how many is too many per week, Jen? Oh, (laughs) yeah. You know, it's it's really um, encouraging now that some of the major health organizations, um, one in, in Canada specifically, but also the World Health Organization are now just saying, sorry, like no amount of alcohol is safe. Oh, okay. Which just happened this spring of 2023 and that we just really hadn't seen that. And I think um, it's very indicative of our society and we see in media where we want to measure, you know, five drinks per week for women and 10 for men, but it's such a slippery slope. Um, and I think if you are have, have an addictive personality, you can still tell yourself you're kind of falling within those guidelines, whatever they might be. Um, but the reality is, I mean, I looked at that and I was like, 
I started to disguise it at the end where instead of buying a bottle of wine, which you know you have like that's five glasses of wine, you would buy boxed wine and just be like, you know, and you tell yourself, you tell yourself whatever you need to, that you're moderating, that you're, you know, working out, like it's not an issue. So I think those guidelines, while, you know, may have served some people well, are also just uh, not accessible for a lot of people who just cannot take or leave it. Like they just need to cut it out completely. Do you consider alcoholism a disease, Jen, or is is an addictive personality and a propensity to substances truly the disease? I can't, I can't really decipher what the line really is in the brain that makes someone want to engage in this behavior, even though they might know it's self-destructive. Yeah, it is self-destructive, which um, I think that is the question that I am grappling with right now too. And like, I always cite the Huberman podcast in um, August of 2022. It's like an hour and a half long podcast that um, was, again, the first time I'd heard him talk about what actually happens in the brain and like what a social experience looks like when you are drinking. And many people, you know, because alcohol is a depressant at some point, they just, you know, they just have whatever, three, four drinks and they're done. Um, There's a certain part of the population that does not seem to have that what I call off switch. I did not have it. I had the propensity to drink more. Um, I did not have any, um, like my body processed alcohol fairly well. I didn't have like the repercussions like some people have with allergic reactions. I had none of that. It was like, um, you know, more, more, more at a certain point um, that I could never predict. And I think that's also um, a very telling pattern or behavior for people to fully recognize. Like if you don't if all your friends are kind of cutting off and tapering off at a certain point and you are going, that is a sign that you just have that propensity. And the disease question, um, that's how they talk about it in AA. Um, some of that has benefited the community in terms of like saying, this is something that's out of our control. I think the biggest misconception is, oh my God, you're messing up your life. Um, why can't you stop? It's clearly, and actually as an addictive person, I wanted to stop. I desperately wanted to stop. And, but the outside perception looking in is like, you don't want to, like you, you're, you should be able to control it. You should be able to drink responsibly. And that's what culture, that's what big alcohol tells us. That's what everyone says. So when your addictive personality or behaviors don't fit into that, it's, um, it's very internalized. It's very shaming and it keeps you in the cycle. And for me, it just made me want to drink more. I was like, I, I can't get out of this. And it's very frustrating for loved ones to watch someone go through that and not understand like the disease of it. So labeling it that has had some benefits in that it really um, kind of contributes to the idea that it's out of our control. Like if someone gets a cancer diagnosis, that's a disease that's out of your control. So some of that correlation has benefited those in recovery. Um, I am not sold on the language of all of that yet. And then how hereditary do you think alcoholism is? Mm. Oh, that's such a good question. So there's the propensity we talked about, you know, and if you do have alcoholism in your family, and I was reading a stat the other day, um, the gene or the alcoholic gene or whatever that is, um, has boys can pick that up like 50% more than um, girls. So there's like a little uh, correlation there, but there's also this idea of trauma in the body and your 
experiences. And if you look at ACEs, adverse childhood um, experiences, those correlate very closely with alcohol misuse because it's it's a numbing, it's a coping mechanism. And why, why do we need to cope? Well, we've had trauma. So it, there's definitely more study and research going into not only having like, again, the propensity or the, um, you know, like pattern in your family history to go to alcohol as a way to cope, but then there's also the trauma component. And in those families, if I, I know several women actually in Al-Anon who, you know, were raised in a family that might've had an alcoholic father or mother, whatever. Um, so that generational trauma also continues. So there's patterns there. There's, I mean, there's a lot um, to look at when you look at how, you know, how does this like young person's um, path potentially look? And I've, I've talked openly about with my kids about what that might look like for them, given my history of abuse and what that's tied to. And as you mentioned, although maybe the word disease isn't the most accurate, it's really something out of your control, which definitely leads itself to needing external support and help. Um, mm-hmm. specifically maybe going to a rehabilitation center. Now, do most insurances cover something like that? Or is that completely out of pocket if you need help like that? Yeah, I and I don't, um, my work isn't in that space, but I can say from personal experience that I had very good insurance um, and was turned away from a very local prominent, um, you know, um, addiction recovery treatment center in my area. And I know that is the story. I know that's to be true. And I think there's, um, you know, the, the whole system around <laughs> treatment and getting help um, is kind of in chaos, I think, right now. I mean, it's there's definitely amazing programs out there, but um, an innovation in how that looks. So a lot of, you know, the idea of treatment is to go away if you're going to an inpatient treatment. There's also outpatient, which means you can kind of still maybe show up for your job, but then you have these requirements to be in group um, daily and checking in. There's sober living. There's all different levels of um, being in community that um, you can explore. And insurances cover all different, you know, things in different ways. And it's, you know, unfortunately, some of these uh, treatment centers that are, you know, amazing and could be helpful are just completely inaccessible for so many. Now, we talk a lot about big tobacco, but big alcohol is just as powerful as I'm sure you're aware. Is there ever a part of you, Jen, that worries about speaking out against big alcohol? Or is that kind of an old school mindset of the 40s where there's the fear and intimidation factor? Yeah, it's it's frightening um, to speak out against big alcohol. But, you know, once you start looking at the label, you know that alcohol is indeed ethanol. And the way that it's disclosed on the label now being essentially, um, you know, don't operate heavy machinery or you might not want to drink if you are pregnant or think you might be or are nursing. So like they've just honed in on super specific categories. Um, And if you look at that and you don't fall into those categories, it's easy to dismiss that you could actually have on the label hundreds of other underlying correlations with alcohol misuse. And I just think it's a huge disservice to the American public to continue to go on and um, be so narrow-minded in what 
is really truly causing devastating harm in our bodies. And as we age, you see that and people, you know, at age 50, whatever, after 30 years of hardcore alcohol abuse, or even moderate, you see it show up. And it's like, and the, the links between breast cancer for women and alcohol, I mean, that was frightening to me. In fact, toward the end of my misuse and going into sobriety, I was like, wow, I somehow knew of that fact, but was such in the addictive phase that um, that wasn't even a deterrent for me at that point. But you have to look at all the underlying causes and how it shows up in society. And that's not only from personal health impact, but um, the you know Department of Transportation with you know DUIs and like the the domestic violence that stems from alcohol use. It's just widespread. I mean, if the label, if you could truly talk about that on the label, it would be. I don't know. I don't even know how you would include all of that. But yeah, it is kind of frightening to go up against big alcohol to ask for that and say that. After your TED Talk came out, was there any slivers of fear in your mind of some sort of odd repercussion? <laughs> um, yes, a little. Um, and because I delivered the talk in October of 2022 and it just went live July of 2023. So I'm not naive enough to think that, oh, you know, I'm, I, there hasn't been any conversation about that. But certainly, um, you know, once you have a talk out there, it lives forever. So there certainly could be things that come up. But ultimately, I have to think that being in that purpose and having other people watch and support the talk and show support for the message ultimately is a tipping point. Um, for, for that to be really closely considered and looked at. And it's a social good. It has to come from a social good place because there's no denying that the revenue that big alcohol and even our bars and restaurants across America are dependent on because of ethanol consumption um, is a, a major thing to unpack. And, and who's willing to do that? Who's willing to step up and say, this is going to be extremely hard. It's going to cost dollars, it's going to cost, you know, us revisioning what our social spaces look like. You know, I always say like a bar, a restaurant, for example, let's get architects and designers involved to not put the bar at the center of the social experience where there's all your labels of your beautiful alcoholic beverages. You know, there's so many ways we can get in there and in effect um, some really significant change. But I think it's at a very broad level. And who, who is willing to do that? Uh, fearless people, people who aren't afraid, that's for sure. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. Now, if you remember back a few years now, the height of the pandemic, right? Fear, mm. everybody's scared. Nobody knows what COVID-19 is. Liquor stores got to remain open because they were deemed essential. Jen, give me, <laughs> give me, and you're laughing right now, give me one word that describes your feelings towards this. Wow. Yeah. I mean, sadness. Oh, okay. It is a sad reality that it came to that. I mean, what do you think would have happened if they wouldn't have remained open? Well, obviously it's a deterrent. It would have been hard for people to, to get access to that. And I'm sure that was the first thing that people look to. It's a coping mechanism, right? So you're in this 
unknown panic situation. You're at home, you have time on your hands, you don't know anything. Everything is uncertain. What you do know is that alcohol will numb that. Um, and so, it, I mean, I, I could see the trajectory of it. I could see that it would make sense. I saw, you know, um, liquor stores jumping into the delivery at home mode. And we had a local liquor store that we talked about um, what that impact, what that looked like for their business. And, you know, that's that's what their public, that's what the public was asking for. And they developed, you know, as a, any business would, a way to serve their customers. Nothing was true, really surprising to me about that. But the fact that there were also laws that now all of a sudden you could go get your takeout um, you know, order, get your takeout and also alcoholic beverages to go. So essentially you're giving people roadies, they come, you know, pick it up. And that's a popular, you know, term in Minnesota and Wisconsin. But, you know, that's, that's the reality of it. And they, there were laws passed to say that is okay to do now in COVID because we need to make sure people can get alcoholic beverages. We need to keep our restaurants in business. I mean, there's a whole, it's very complex, but what, you know, what I saw happening was um, pretty devastating. And the continued um, effects of that are, you know, the remote from work. And what I hear now, like a lot of women who have said they their drinking slipped into having, you know, starting at 10 a.m. and just being like, I got to be on a Zoom call. No one will know. I mean, there's just all sorts of things in that community to say, um, you know, I'm going off my screen. I'm going to be, you know, whatever, just participating with audio. I'm going to have my drink and like essentially day drinking through work. That's where we're at. And it feels like, again, this is another divergence from tobacco because it's widely accepted how dangerous cigarettes specifically are for people, but not so much alcohol, or it feels like it's not being promoted as much. And you mentioned something earlier, the the link between breast cancer and alcohol. What are some other highly negative uh, research-backed impacts of alcohol in the human body that you don't feel aren't being communicated enough? Oh my gosh, there's so many, Joe. Um, sleep. Sleep is, I mean, I, I myself experienced like this idea of I can fall asleep. I have no problem falling asleep, but I would wake up in the middle of the night, like alcohol, like once the sugar and everything burns off, um, you wake up in the middle of the night. Oftentimes people are very panicked uh, with that and it's interruptive to your sleep. The quality of your sleep is really awful. And then you wake up the next day and they just do it all over again. So sleep is a big one. There's obviously people that dive like Huberman again is excellent to um, research on the topic. And there's definitely, there's people that love to hear the numbers on that because those numbers might get them thinking about shifting their alcohol use. So there's apps that track it. And one of the biggest things I've heard in the health and wellness community is certain apps that track, um, like even if you've had one beverage, one alcoholic beverage, how does that impact your capacity to work out and your recovery? So I would encourage anyone, especially, you know, if, if you are driven by stats and those type of things to look at the tools out there, because it will tell you, and, you know, these athletes are driven to perform, you know, marathons and different. And once you look at the data, your body is telling you, you know, this is impacting you in this way. You're 30 percent less productive in your workout because of, you know, you had two beers last night. Sorry, it's just the truth. Um, so once you see that and if you're driven by that, that can be very effective. 
to look at. So sleep is one um, productivity in the workplace. Oh my goodness. Um, that's a huge one. And that's also where a lot of my work is going to focus going forward is the corporate space because um, there's, there's a lot of productivity issues. There's a lot of conflict within workplace that takes place just because alcohol is the root of that community or conversation that corporate culture tries to create. Hey everybody, this week's episode is brought to you by my new book, Leader Relativity. Becoming a leader has literally never been this simple. I spent two and a half years boiling it down, waking up at 4.30 every morning, thinking how much easier can I make this subject for someone who's a little nervous in the beginning and just want something to get started, to get their foot in the door. So that's what I did. The book's called Leader Relativity and you can get it anywhere you buy books. Thanks. Now, as far as just the feeling you get, aside from the actual health impacts, um, obviously rotten is a way to describe uh, how a hangover feels. But if technology, if we could come up with a pill that would make you feel 10 times worse the next day <laughs> as a way to uh, kind of curb people's enthusiasm for drinking, would you be an advocate for such a pill? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's a great question. Um, I feel like it's, I feel like it's horrible enough. Um, and it's, again, when you say, you know, just waking up, not feeling well, there's physical, but there's the emotional and mental piece of that, you know, like I think sometimes, and it, depending on who you are, if your body processes alcohol, like mine actually did that, I think somewhat okay compared to what I've heard others, but like I would get up and go get a workout in. And then by the end of the workout, I'd be like, okay, that's a reset. Um, so I think there are not only physical harm, but like the emotional and the mental weight of a hangover, um, are, are quite devastating if, if you stop and actually think about it. So no, I would not wish a pill. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> What age range, and I'll limit it to the United States, do you see the most, I'm going to call them single use fatalities, where it's not liver disease, but instead it's overconsumption and then getting behind the wheel of a car or drinking yourself to death, presumably. Do you see that more in younger people or is it pretty spread out throughout the population? Yeah, Joe, I don't know the exact stats on all of that, um, but I would say that you know, chronic and acute um, results from alcohol can look different across generations, across, um, you know, different communities. And I personally probably have a little bit more, so I'm, you know, in my fifties and um, a lot more examples of women now, um, you know, experiencing some major devastating health consequences from a lifetime of alcohol abuse. But I also see a younger generation um, experimenting with all sorts of substances and combining alcohol with other substances and that mix without enough education. So those um, can tend to be a little bit more acute. And I look at college, you know, binge drinking still happening very widely. And I think that community, you know, alcohol use shows up very differently. And, um, you know, so I think it's across a whole spectrum to, to look at kind of what's happening and, and be aware of that if we're going to try to solve for some of the social issues. You know, we talked about the drinking age and it's kind of unofficially when you go to college, right? Cause you, you <laughs> right, leave home right. and now, you know, you get your fake ID yep, and all yes, bets you are can off. Have access, 
Easy, easy access. Yes. What do you feel is the true responsibility of universities to educate their students? Um, yeah, that is huge. In fact, one of I'd love to go back to my school and talk to young women my age when I entered college. I I think I think it should go hand in hand with your orientation and your you know support system on campus. There's locally a college who, and there's actually college, you know, programs that are sober. There's high schools that are sober high schools. Um, so I'm starting to, you know, with work in our dissonance community, which is the nonprofit I'm a board member of, we are looking at those models and it's, it's fascinating. It's like, yeah, these, um, you know, students have determined that alcohol doesn't fit in their life at a very early age. And they are now in a supported high school environment um, amazing. And then what are the long-term impacts? Like what is the impact on those students as they go forward into the world, having that kind of solid high school experience where alcohol is not a part of, and then you extend that into college. And, um, you know, I think sporting events in particular at some of these campuses are, you know, there, there's social experiences there that you could start to get in on and shift some of that. Um, it's so big. Now, what's your recommendation to parents who have children who are in high school? Because, and I'm going to ask you for the linkages in a moment, but you know, there's this idea that, oh, I don't want to be the not cool parent. Right. Or I, I, I want to be my kid's friend, which I think is kind of a backwards mentality, but is there a direct link between the age of first consumption and then issues down the road with alcohol? Like it should mm. parents really be taking a much more stern stance with their kids that, Hey, you're not going to drink and I'm going to guarantee it. Yeah. Oh, that is such a good conversation. Well, one for one, if you are an adult and not, you know, in a relationship with alcohol, that's problematic or they see you in social settings using alcohol to connect how are you going to have that be off limits for them? Great point. It just does not add up. It's like I, you know, it's again, the role model. And one of the things that drove me to become and stay sober was modeling that for my kids. There is no way I could continue, you know, using alcohol more excessively in those situations and then go back and tell them, don't you dare. Right. You just can't. It does not fly. With teens, they're going to be like, whatever, whatever. Um, so that is a message that is really important. Like if you are thinking of cutting back or you want to talk with your kids about it, you yourself have to reflect some of those positive behaviors. So that's number one. And then um, the other thing is if you are using it in that way and you still want to have a conversation with your kids, the conversation is always number one, like being open about it and being very cognizant of what they're ready to hear, what you know level they're at and explaining to them, you know, how alcohol shows up for other people, or if you see it in a, in a movie or TV or in pop culture somewhere, taking those moments to say, oh, that person, um, you know, display, like in that movie is acting drunk. What does that mean? How did they, you know, how did that happen? How is that person behaving in that way? Like all those conversation opportunities along the way as they're growing up, but also recognizing that one of the most valuable things actually is for them to have some sort of experience there's really not any way around um, right now in our culture, I see that you wouldn't be come in contact with alcohol at some sort of high school 
college gathering. I mean, it's just so prevalent. So you can't just be like, don't like avoid those things. You have to give them the tools and kind of the reasons to come to that conclusion on their self or for themselves that alcohol might not be the best thing for them, but also supporting and recognizing, you know, when that does happen, I'm still going to be here for you, but there's going to be some consequences. Yeah. So no, no friend zone um, other than just um, tough love and your, your parenting steps in heavily in this conversation. Now, going back to people though, who, who do have an issue with substance abuse and we talked about alternatives is any of the work you're doing involved with, um, well, you brought up Huberman Lab, so I'm sure you're aware of, you know, the role psychedelics can play in, in treating substances mm-hmm. and, yes. and abuse like that. So is there is there at all a conversation going on right now in the NA world on bringing in these methods for people to try? Have people done it and reported back to you that, hey, I think it works or it doesn't? Or is it too mm-hmm. new to tell? Yeah, that's a great question as well. Um, Those are the conversations we're having with Zero Proof Collective. We really are staying in the substance-free lane and that we want to advocate that people have a completely substance-free experience socially, at least as a baseline to know what that feels like. Because um, yes, um, psychedelics and other, you know, things that people have experimented with, they've reported back and we've had conversations that they have been helpful in many ways. It's just... um, the research is a little inconclusive and how that all transitions for an individual is, I don't know at this point, but to say that, yes, there are some solutions that work for people, but overall um, we really just want to stay in the lane of promoting substance free experiences because the other piece to that is um, finding true, like deeper connection with people. Now you're a proponent of substance free, but not a substance, but so many people, I think of Indiana Jones, right? He takes, takes the gold off and he puts a stone on. And so many people I've heard, you know, they, they might remove alcohol, but then they hit the gym like 50 times a week or things like that, right? Mm -hmm. That addictive personality is still there. What are some of the best, I'm going to use the word substitutes just for lack of a better term that you've seen people do that, that actually stick and help with fighting that craving? Yeah. Um, for sure. Physical movement. Okay. Um, but like to your, your point, a lot of people with addictive personalities will go right into the gym and do just that. But you also are kind of weighing, you know, as, and, and a lot of people in early sobriety are like protecting sobriety fiercely. And so you might be doing other things that aren't long-term going to sustain or benefit you, but the goal, the number one goal is to not drink. So I, I think, you know, the movement, the physical movement for me was always key. Like people say, getting out in nature, connecting with community. There's just very straightforward things you can do if you are trying to cut out alcohol completely or just not have it um, as prevalent in your life. So definitely working out um, just gets the body moving and activates just all these good hormones that, you know, actually you maybe sought with alcohol and thought you were getting. Nope. They can actually be found kind of naturally through different activities. Now, Jen, before I let you go, let's, let's hop into a situation where I've got a friend or a loved one who is newly sober and I want to support them on their journey, but I still want to hang out and I still want to go things to them and have fun. 
is the best and most respectful way forward to just come right out and ask them, Hey, is this going to be triggering for you? Or is there like a nuanced playbook that you can look up as to how best to interact with someone? Can you give any advice on that? Yeah. And it's again, based on your relationship with the person and where they're at, but it is always the best to just ask, how can I support you in this? And I will tell you just the example. So, you know, on the um, receiving side of this, I had friends in early sobriety that didn't know what to do with me. Right. Like, what do I ask her to do? I'm just, I'm, I don't get her whole lifestyle right now. I'm just going to like pull away, not going to ask anything, um, whatever. And I had other friends that were like, Hey, let's go grab coffee. Let's go to yoga. Let's like knew enough of what I like to do that they could just, um, offer to, pick me up, do, you know, take me to yoga class or whatever and do things that didn't revolve around alcohol. I mean, I think that's the biggest thing, right? Especially in early sobriety, it's like, um, maybe not ready for that. So I think that's the best way you can support someone is to offer up those type of activities, but then also just ask because they, they might be at a different place. They might be ready to go do something that you hadn't anticipated that could be healthy. Sage advice, Jen. Thank you. And I can't, Thank you enough for coming on. If folks want to get a hold of more of the work you're doing, how can they do that? Where can they reach the work you're doing? Yeah, um, online on my website is just jengilhoy.com. So J-E-N-G-I-L-H-O-I. And then zeroproofcollective.com is our you know, kind of collective group of leaders in the NA industry or trying to kind of overcome some of these barriers in our social spaces. So we um, have a really strong community there and you can find both of us. So Jen Gilhoy on Instagram and then Zero Proof Collective on Instagram too. Amazing. Thank you so much, Jen, for coming on. I really appreciate it. This is great. You pose so many great questions and I love the, the research piece of it because I also, I'm working to kind of strengthen my knowledge in that area because um, a lot of the work I've done is just trying to shift culture and social spaces. Um, but that the research all needs to kind of come together with that. So great question. Oh, thank you. Thank you.